the adage that we like to quote in the industry is that there are two types of companies. There are the companies that have been hacked, and then there are the companies that don't know that they have been hacked. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. And today, my guest is someone I have known for an incredibly long time. Todd Kane from Evolved Management. Todd, how are you? I'm awesome, Matt. Good to see you. Good to see you too. You know what? I've been working on my accent, my Canadian accent since I moved back from the US. So I've been watching Letterkenny for like five days straight. That's an excellent show. So you got to practice your aboot since you're out there in the in the East. That's definitely what the Americans remember about Canadians saying stuff. Uh, but it's actually just a, a, a maritime thing. I know it's an Eastern Canadian thing. I always tell people that. they go, oh, what's that all about? And I'm like, nobody says that in Western Canada. Like, do you talk like this? Hey, y'all. <laughs> Southern drawl. You know, I had a good, pretty good, like, non-regional diction thing going on when I was in Portland area, right? Because I came from, I mean, I, when I was young, I lived in Eastern Canada. Then I lived in, like, British Columbia. Then I lived in Calgary. Then I went to Portland. Then I moved to Minneapolis. And then I moved back. I mean, I had a really messed up kind of accent. Nobody could put their finger on it because it wasn't really strong in any direction. Nobody would like, they, they wouldn't be like, I bet you're from such and such place. You probably just qualify as Midwestern. That's right. That's all they can approximate to you. Right. And then you don't have the right like euphemisms and stuff, right? So because pop or soda. Yeah. Pop or soda. People say in like Washington and Oregon, I don't know if they do it in California. People say that something happens on accident instead of by accident. I've heard that before. Yep. Yeah. And then one of the Minneapolis ones or, or I don't know, Midwest ones, I think that I ran into immediately was I had to park in like a parking garage, but they call them ramps. They're like, you got to park in the ramp. And I'm like, it's not really a ramp, but I'll park there. <laughs> do I have to drive up a ramp to get to the parking lot? <laughs> a lot of times you do. So it kind of made sense. But anyway... We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about cybersecurity, yes. which is a, a horrific problem in the world now. Cybersecurity is an unmitigated disaster in the world right now. I think you probably have seen more than I have, but good Lord, have I seen. Like, I don't even want to give people my information anymore, except for the fact that so many people have already lost it that I'm like, yeah, you know, what else are they going to learn about me that hasn't been stolen at this point already? I mean, even the US government got broken into it's several times. Social Security Administration. You know what? This is a funny one, too. And I'll stop jibber jabbering in a minute and let you talk about it. But when the first PPP loan came out, the Payroll Protection Program, I'm like, they're going to throw this thing together so fast that somebody's going to break in and get all the data. And it didn't even take 30 days. Like two or three weeks later, somebody had broken in and stolen all the PPP data, which is every company's financials and you know, like all of their EIN information and stuff like that. So anyway, let me ask you a question. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do and who you work with, and then we can get more into cybersecurity. 
Sure. So I am a management consultant and I focus on IT service providers. Uh, more specifically, I focus on the IT organizations called managed services that provide a service that is basically outsourcing your IT department to a IT organization. So they see a lot of this. You know, it, I always say it's difficult enough to be the IT department for one company and then it becomes borderline crazy to be a, the IT department for 150 companies. In addition, like they don't necessarily have the 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 capability to set budgeting and determination and make a lot of these decisions they're they're trying to do the best that they can and influence the customers to do what's right but really they're just consultants to giving giving some direction to people and ultimately how those companies spend their money and what they do with technology is still largely up to them so it's a it's a tricky position that they get put in where they they know the threats that are out there they see the stuff day in day out and some businesses just don't take it that seriously and the adage that we like to quote in the industry is that there are two types of companies. There are the companies that have been hacked, and then there are the companies that don't know that they have been hacked. So cybersecurity is a prevalent issue, as you said. It it used to be that it was kind of reserved for certain people to think about. And, you know, they there were certain reasons that they had to think about their security. And most people just assumed, well, you know, I'm a small business. I run an accounting firm in Minnesota. Like, why would someone care about me? And the point that people need to understand here is that these are crimes of opportunity. Like, it, it, the Internet is a place where you can just literally walk down the street and knock on doors and see who has left their business unlocked in a, in a digital fashion. And you can do that from anywhere in the world. So the the threat is, is extremely real and the threat is more real for small businesses because no one is interested in trying to hack Microsoft because Microsoft literally spends tens of billions of dollars to secure their infrastructure, whereas a small business does not have the budget to spend on protecting their business in the same way that an enterprise does. Therefore, they're a softer target. So this is something that everyone needs to understand and especially with the sort of push to work from home, there's a lot more sort of surface area to attack. It used to be if you're protecting your business, then great. But now you've also got people spread out all over the place using potentially their personal machines to access company data and things start to get a little weird from there. Yeah, it gets super sketchy when people are using their own equipment because you, you don't know who else is using their equipment. Yeah, like you've you've got their their ten year old downloading all kinds of games that they want to want to play on this machine, and that's sort of one of my my little list of cybersecurity tips is be very careful of what you download, especially if it's free. You know, the, uh, a lot of people download movies and music and things like that, and or just free software that they they can access on the internet. And when things are free, you got to question who's paying for this, right? And often like, they're farming your information or loading in what are called key loggers, where there's a program running in the background that is recording all of your keystrokes. So when you finally go to your banking site, then that program is potentially logging all of that login information and and collecting that data. So you got to be really, really careful about what you install on your machine. And then also, I mean, there's there's kind of a few layers of attacks, right, that that can happen to anyone, you know, as long as you're connected to the Internet. And there's kind of I don't know, like how you would classify it, but there's like people pretending that they've attacked you. Right. Or that they've compromised your system and they send you an email and they say, like, I know what you've been watching on the Internet and I'm going to tell everybody if you don't send me a Bitcoin or whatever. Right. 
And then there's like like phishing attacks, which are like, hey, something's happened at your bank. You know, you need to log in to approve this charge or something like that. And then they just have a fake bank login. You log in, they steal your bank credentials, right? Like that kind of stuff is phishing where they're phishing, quote, for information. And then you've got like actual attacks, right, where somebody's downloaded a piece of software or something like that, that I think a common one right now, and you might agree uh, or not, but the when it encrypts all the information on their computer and then that can spread out to network drives and, and other computers and stuff like that. And then they you have to pay to get the encryption key back. They're basically holding your data hostage. There's denial of service attacks where they're using thousands of computers probably infected with a virus that, you know, the, the people who are on those computers may not know that. And then all of those computers try to go to a website at the same time or another type of address and they can deny your service, meaning that it'll take the website down or it'll knock your network offline. What other types of attacks have you seen? That's a, a pretty good laundry list of the ones that people will typically see. So the, the phishing attempts are the ones that are certainly the most prevalent because, it, you know, it's obviously very, very cheap to send an email. And if you send 100,000 emails and you get simply one click, it's already worth it. And, it, you know, I think people, if they're honest with themselves, people click on a lot of stuff. Like they need to be more thoughtful about what you actually click on. So a security campaign that, that IT organizations try to run is, is, a, is a phishing campaign, right? It's an awareness campaign. They'll either tell people or they won't tell people that they're going to run this campaign. And they'll send out these these emails that look like phishing campaigns, but they're actually sent by the IT organization. And they collect statistics on who's clicking what. They'll send an email that says, you know, we need to recollect your information for your payroll info. Or, you know, hey, we had a, a great time at that company event. Log into this site in order to tag your photos, right? And then they prompt you to log in with your company data. And they're basically stealing that data from you. And this stuff is really easy and the hit rate on it is incredibly high. You know, when the the phishing campaigns uh, get sent out, even in IT organizations, there's still a a large segment of people that get caught by this stuff because they just don't simply take the time to think about it. So you definitely got to be really cautious with those. You mentioned the, the crypto attacks. Those are super, super prevalent to the extent where the, the people that run these, these, these crypto businesses, they actually have help desks where if you don't know how to buy a Bitcoin, like you phone this 1-800 number and the, there's like a, a customer support rep that will walk you through the process of how you buy Bitcoin to pay them in order to pay the ransom. Which when I heard about this, I was blown away. I was like, man, like the criminals have, have customer service centers because this is an actually an enterprise. And they answer the phone. They probably actually have pretty good customer service. They really do. I've, I've had someone call one once just to, we were, we were curious. We we're like, what does this look like? So we set up a, a basically a spoofed number to call this place and we're like, okay, so, you know, I need you to unlock my data and we didn't need them to, but we were just curious. And it was actually a very, very pleasant experience, probably better than most of the vendors that I would typically call. Yeah. Jesus. Customer service has gone downhill, but that's another episode. So. The, the cyber criminal organizations in some places, like I don't even know how they can operate like so well without some kind of legal scrutiny. And I know that the rule of law is obviously not as prevalent in some places as it is in others. 
you know, and maybe, you know, some places don't have cybersecurity laws or maybe they don't have the infrastructure to kind of track these people down. But man, I was reading a post where he was a guy, a young guy who's getting out of school. He got into some trouble doing some hacking when he was underage. And uh, when he was, you know, 19 years old or something, he was getting out of college and he had gotten contacted by an organization and they wanted to kind of recruit him just like a company would recruit someone. They were trying to recruit him because he's, he'd been charged before with some kind of hacking related crime. And they, they were offering him 600 US dollars an hour. Pretty good pay. That's pretty good money to be a cyber criminal, right? So, yeah, it's just amazing, like both the size and the complexity of these organizations. And you got to think like, you know, if I'm a small business, I got like a little law firm or a dentist office or something like what chance do they really have? It's tricky. I think there's certainly some things that you can do, right? Like the one the one that's probably the easiest is everyone should use a password manager. Right. Like because, you know, your dog's name one, two, three is something easy for you to remember. Mean also means that it's a terrible password. Right. So use a password manager like LastPass, Dashlane, all of the one password. There's plenty of tools for this. They're incredibly easy to use. And all it does is randomly generates a, a secure password for every website that you want to log into. You never know what your password is. And whenever you go to that website, the tool just plugs that password in for you. What this protects you against is when you're your credentials get stolen, usually they're associated with your email address. So then they just try your email address and that same password on every other website that they can and they they, they potentially get into all of your other services. So that's that's probably the most important one is, is utilizing a password manager to so that your, your passwords on different websites are all randomized and very secure, difficult to hack because they're 16 characters. You would never remember them, but the computer remembers them fine, obviously. The second one that I would strongly recommend is using multi-factor authentication in any of the websites or services that you use where it's allowed. This can be slightly technical for people that are not sort of super uh, comfortable with computers. It's not that difficult to do, but essentially all it does is, you know, you have your Google Authenticator app. When you go into log into the website, it says, you know, plug in this the the random number that's inside the app. You type in that number and it authenticates that you have the secondary piece of information. And that way, if any of your credentials ever get compromised, if someone tries to log in, you'll get prompts for this saying like, is this you? Do you want to authenticate? And you just say no. And then you know that that, that service has been compromised. And my Microsoft research shows that just having MFA, uh, multi-factor authentication, usually stops up to 80% of the attacks on, on individuals, right? So it's, it's a pretty uh, amazing sort of stat that just this piece of technology will largely protect you from most of the, the attacks or personal credential information that might get leaked. And at least you kind of have that second barrier of protection. So those two things, the password manager and the MFA, if nothing else, definitely start with those. If I can add something to those, the password manager is great if you have a team of people who need to access the same passwords for some things, because each member of the team has their own login to get into the password manager. But then you don't have to try and make passwords that everybody's going to remember, or you don't have them written on a sheet of paper in your drawer in your office, right? Or everybody wrote them down somewhere, or everybody put them in a text file on their computer, and then they take their laptop home and their kid plays with it. I mean, you just get so much exposure to your passwords if you don't use a password manager. And you can get a team login so that everybody on your team can, you know, you can say, these passwords are only for, you know, the management and these passwords are only for, you know, the, the corporate staff or whatever. Right. So you can 
organize your passwords that way, which is great. And then the other thing that you were saying, the uh, two-factor authentication is, I mean, it could be as simple as, you know, it sends a code to your phone, right? Like a text message or it sends you an email or something with a code in it. And, you know, most people, I think if you use anything like Facebook, Google, you know, any of these platforms for advertising, I have never heard of a person who had two-factor authentication have their ad account broken into. But I've heard a ton of people wake up in the morning and somebody spent four grand on their credit card running Facebook ads for, you know, whatever. And you don't want that to happen, right? You don't want somebody breaking into your Google account. And, you know, if you're running ads on a Google pay-per-click or something like that, and somebody just goes in and runs 10 grand worth of ads for fake Cialis or something. That's a really good point as well, just on, on protecting the, the ad platforms, because you're right, like they, they won't drive traffic to your website. They're going to drive traffic to somebody else or your credit card. And the, the, the point about the, the shared passwords is also a really good one, because if you are sharing passwords in a password manager, there's also a tracked access. So you get a, you get a record of who accessed what uh, passwords at any given time. And then if someone is no longer with your team, you just lock them out and they no longer have access to those passwords. Some of those tools, you can even tell it to rotate the password afterwards. So in case someone copied that password or wrote it down somewhere, you just rotate the password. Doesn't affect you, doesn't affect the rest of the team, but that person that shouldn't have access to that is now locked out. So really good points there, yep. And do not save your password to your password manager in your browser. Yeah, that's a pretty common one. But the most security experts would agree that the the protections in the browser are not fantastic. It's I mean, it's better than nothing. But you know, using those third party tools is going to be a better bet for you. Also, I would uh, also add SMS is better than nothing for that multi factor authentication. But there is another attack you're asking about different types of attacks. There's another one called SIM hijacking, where basically they they call your your telco provider and I've heard the phone calls that go on with this. And it's incredibly easy for people to manipulate those customer service desks to have them change your phone address to a new phone for whatever reason they make up and and basically lie to this person, manipulate them to change this address. So they redirect your 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 SMS traffic to a different uh, phone, and it looks like your phone. So it's not terribly secure, but as I said, it's better than nothing for sure. And you know what, honestly, and I know this is a aside from what we're talking about, but the people coming up with these ideas of how to do these kinds of attacks and all these new ways that they can rip people off, you know, God forbid they actually use that knowledge and that programming and stuff to do something like beneficial. Like, I mean, can you imagine the software that these people could come up with that could help with stuff if they could run a customer service desk without the police breaking down their door? You know, anyways, that is a decide from it. Well, it is and it isn't right because it comes back to one thing you said is like how do people get away with this where is the rule of law and it's manipulated in some countries this is like they don't have a good record of this because obviously it's black market a crime but it's you know it's estimated to be between 40 to 120 billion dollar industry right like that is a lot of cheddar to spread around and pay people off right you can you can absolutely have some people turn a blind eye about what that call center is actually up to or you know there's actually in some cases the stuff can be state sponsored right so there's so much money that flows around that they are actually incredibly creative and there's a lot of corruption yeah about about this is this is a business like it's not a legitimate business but it is 100% a legit business right <laughs> well you've got whole call centers 
listeners in parts of countries like, you know, India, I've heard of them in Africa, and I'm sure there's there's other ones in other, you know, continents and countries, but they're just calling like with like robo dialing people to try and get your social security numbers been canceled. So you better call, you know, all this kind of bullshit that happens. Right. And the police are coming to get you unless you buy 12 Starbucks cards and give us the numbers on them. Like just stupidest shit in the world. But so, and the two important points here, one's important. The other one's kind of a, just a fun, a fun little detail. The government cannot contact you by phone, right? The, if, if the IRS or the CRA, which is the IRS equivalent in Canada, if they're ever going to contact you about something, they have to send something by registered mail. If you've signed up by, by email service, they will email you, but they will never give you a link per se. And if anyone ever asks, you to click on something, usually I just ignore the link and go to the website, right? But it's an important point that like government agencies will never phone you and threaten you. That's how you know that that stuff is a scam. And they will not, they will not email you and say, you need to do this. They, they have to send you registered communications. Second point is, uh, it just reminded me of one of my all-time favorite podcasts. It's a podcast called Reply All. And there's a certain two-part episode called Long Distance. And it's about exactly that, right? They, they're, they're a couple of guys that report about the internet on this podcast. And one day he gets a phone call from one of these service desks posing as Apple needing access to his machine. So he actually just plays along and lets them uh, to have access to his machine. And then he kind of watches what they're doing. And then he starts to call the person out on like, hey, I know this is fraudulent. I saw what you did and all of this. And then it goes on for this long escapade where he actually ends up traveling to India to like meet with the group that is running this place. (laughs) Wow. It's a really, really fascinating kind of deep dive into this world. I saw something similar where someone had someone call and then, you know, it was, you know, whatever your social security number has been, you know, deleted or some stupid shit. Anyways, he follows through and he goes through the whole process and he actually pays them money, right? To see what the next step is, because they will just keep escalating it to get more and more money, right? When someone pays them. And uh, man, talking about cybersecurity, here's another one. This was a, like, I don't, I don't, it's hard to say how this happened, but we have a client. We were not managing any of their security services. So, so I mean, this is not a problem that, that our company created. But what happened was they had to send a really large money order. And it was like, I don't know, $60,000 or something. And so they send it. And then they get an email back saying, hey, we got all this information. It had all the same information that they sent. They said, but I think the account number is wrong. It's supposed to be this. And so they said, oh, and they changed it and they sent it again. And somebody had been monitoring either the outgoing email or the email that address that they were sending it to. And they were able to get them to send it to an incorrect address. And they sent $60,000 to some crook, right? And then they had to work with the bank, took weeks. I mean, we were able to help them pull some log files and stuff like that that they could use to prove that, you know, it was fraudulent and somebody scamming them. And but so that one happens a lot, right? So you talked about phishing, where it's just kind of like you're just casting lines and hoping you pick up pick up something. So those ones are more targeted attacks, which are called spear phishing. So it's a bit more pointed, right? And it's funny, like a lot of these things tend to come from a bit of research around conferences. So a word of caution, if you're going to conferences, be a little cautious and sometimes create aliases for the accounts that you're actually registering these services for, because those conference companies often get hacked and the data pool is pretty great because it's for all 
all kinds of companies. And I've seen this occasionally where someone knows that someone is attending a conference, right? That maybe they've set up a booth. And there was a, a, a IT provider that I know of. They had a, they had a customer that was at one of these conferences, and one of the VPs or the or the president was there running a booth. So they they created a camp an email that was crafted to look like exactly it could come from this person, like the same same title, same company logo. It looked very legitimate. And they said, you know, hey, you know, we we wanted to get some additional booth materials. I need you to wire me ten thousand dollars to this account so I can head up to you know Kinko's up the street. And, and start to, to get print off a ton of banners and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, he's at this conference and this is not an, sort of an unusual request. So she wires the money and she's like, she replies back, said, okay, all, all good. You should have the, have the funds. He replies saying, no, it looks like it didn't work. Can you try it again? So she rewires the money, right? So now she sent the money twice. And before she's like, well, wait a minute, this is kind of strange. So she phones the the VP or the president that's at this conference. He's like, what are you talking about? I have not emailed you at all. And like just alarm bells start ringing all over the place, Uh, right? It's so bad to find that out. Can you imagine the poor person who sent that, right? And she's just probably crapped her pants, right? worried that she's going to get fired or lose her job because of something, you know? Yeah, unfortunately she did. But and and I, I think we can kind of appreciate why it's unfortunate for sure. But it, it does sort of bring up another point of if someone asks you to do something in an email, it's not an imposition to phone them or at least text them to verify that, right? Especially when you're wiring large amounts of money, just to escalate to voice and be like, hey, I got this request, just wanted to verify like this is you and this is legit, right? And they're like, yep, it's me. Then okay, cool. Then you can send them the money. But just always a ca- like a caution around anything. One of the, the social manipulation pr- uh, points that people use is, is pressuring around time. Like I need this by the end of the day, it's critical, right? And if any of that it like pops up, just you should put a little extra caution if anyone's pressuring you on time. And that, we're sort of talking about that uh, social manipulation or, or uh, social engineering is what it's called in, in, in the security industry. And there's a, a great consultant, a very famous hacker named Kevin Mitnick. And he's, he's basically one of the fam- most famous hackers in the world because I think he hacked NASA when he was like 14. His book is brilliant. Yeah. So brilliant, brilliant guy. And he now runs a security consulting organization. And he guarantees that he is his team is able to hack your company as long as they're allowed to use social engineering. As soon as you remove social engineering, he can no longer guarantee that he can crack the company, which is really telling, right? So it's he's basically saying like, you might have good enough technology to keep us out. Probably not, but maybe. But if you involve the people, I am guaranteeing you that I will get into this place, right? Right. And so a good example of social engineering is that he was trying to, when when he started his company, to teach companies how to, you know, make policies and procedures and stuff and train their staff for security. He was breaking into a company. I can't remember the name of the company. And what he did is... He basically drove his car in the parking lot and sat there and watched where the people go out when they go on smoke breaks. And he took photographs of what the badges and stuff look like. And he took his picture and made a badge that looks just like the company badge and put it in the same kind of lanyard and the same, you know, and everything right that's on there. And, you know, he dressed similar to the way they dress. And then uh, he would grab some cigarettes. And when they went out on smoke breaks, he, he knew what time they usually go out. So he was already out there. And uh, he'd be like, oh, no, I'm going to stay out for a few more minutes and, you know, whatever. And then you get chat, chit chat with him for a little while. Right. 
And then, you know, after doing that for about three, four days, he just walked right back in with them. They held the door and let him in the building. And uh, once he was in the building, he went to an office, a section of the offices. You know, the other people went to the manufacturing floor. He went into the offices, climbed on a chair over the, you know, you push those ceiling tiles up to get over the wall into the manager's office. And then he used some kind of, I, I don't know if it's a boot manager or something that he plugged in so that it would boot into a different operating system. And then he could install his key logging software. And then he just walked out the door again. And uh, the next day they had all the logins. When the manager went to log in, they were able to go in, connect to the network, get everything out of the company. You know, and it took, took a few days and, you know, a printer <laughs> and, and uh, a few cigarettes and he was able to get in the door. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the my paranoias. And I've I've gotten into almost some heated arguments with people is I almost never hold a door open for someone if I don't know them. And this qualifies going into apartments, certainly going into commercial businesses. And I'll I'll turn around and be like, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I'm not allowed to let you through this door. And people get really angry at you sometimes, but I just won't do it because I I, I know these things and I've I've sort of learned the lessons about physical security, unfortunately. Well, you know what's interesting is that I worked at one of the Intel campuses a few years back, well, quite a few years back, but they put in these turnstiles at the door that only one person can kind of fit into. And, uh, you know, if you're like a really big person or you're carrying a box or whatever reason, you can't fit through the tiny turnstile to get into the building and have to scan your card, then you have to go to the security desk and then they verify your identity. And so, I mean, they're very aware of the social engineering aspects. For sure. Yeah, man traps and they can get really extreme. There was uh, one that I, I went, we used a lot for fairly high class data center that we would go into and you would walk into a room that they would seal you into. It was just sort of like a large tube and it had a floating floor and it would weigh you when you went in and then it would weigh you when you came out to make sure that you're not removing equipment from, from the data center in any way. So yeah, they get really sophisticated around physical security. You have to take a bag of sand and you got to hold it in one hand and then have the server like, you know, like your blade server in the other hand. And you just weigh out the sand and swap it out and then run. I went into a data center. Actually, I went into I can't remember what the class numbers are for the data centers, but it was whatever high security data center. And you go in, you sign in, they take your picture and everything. And then you go into another room while they verify you. And I don't know what their verification process is, but then they give you like a, a lanyard or something that you have to wear around the facility. But that's also tracked in their system so they can see if you take it off or you switch it or whatever. And that helps the cameras follow you around the data center. There's some kind of RFID in it or something, right? It was a really clever system that they had. Unfortunately, we had like 20 people to go in, so it took like an hour to book everybody in. But, you know, if you're trying to be secure. So most people aren't going to be in data centers. They're not going to have, you know, massive stuff. So education is probably the best bet if you have a small business, right? Yeah, 100%. Education, just training people on how to spot those phishing attempts, like uh, hover over links. If you hover your mouse over top of them, it'll usually give you a preview of what that link is. And you want to be sort of put a keen eye to the domains, right? So a lot of domains will be slightly manipulated. It'll be like an I instead of a one or uh, a one instead of an L or a bracket instead of a C, those types of things where it looks like a legitimate 
URL, but they've manipulated something. So you got to be really careful on what you click. And it's it's a pretty good practice to run phishing campaigns and, and general education and security awareness. If you have an IT organization, either internal or you're, you're outsourced to a third party, just ask them to help you out with security awareness training. Most of them are more than happy to do this because it, it actually helps to prevent work from them, right? Cleaning up after a cybersecurity incident is extremely time consuming to make sure that that it, the the area is squeak clean because a lot of attacks are actually born out to do is to just stay resident, right? So it used to be that if you got hacked, things started happening all over the place and it was pretty immediate results. Whereas now, like they just, they, they go for what's called persistent access. So they load something into the back end and then they can have access to the environment basically whenever they want. And that's the name of the game. So anytime you get hacked, it's really difficult to really verify that all the corners have been scrubbed away. So it's very expensive and very time consuming for IT organizations to clean up afterwards. And prevention is the best medicine for sure. Man, time consuming and IT put together equals expensive. I think that's an actual two equals sign equation. That's like IT plus time consuming equals equals. You're probably going to go broke. I had actually a lady on the the podcast super smart her name escapes me immediately but i'll try and look it up to put in the show notes she was talking about cyber security insurance which is something that's getting more prevalent in the united states and canada i don't know about other countries but they had some statistics and it was something like 40 percent of businesses that have a net worth under 10 million dollars go broke from a security like from a cyber security attack and a lot of that is from like fines and things like that that you can get fined for for losing people's data as well as you know you don't want your company in the news as the one who lost everyone's data right yeah reputation damage is significant in these things for sure yeah and I, i'm not sure exactly what the rules are on this maybe you can verify this for for the show notes as well but there are laws now in certainly in northwestern countries where if you are if you are a publicly traded company and you're subject to a, a cybersecurity incident you have to publicize it so you can't sweep it under the rug and if you try to hide that information it's discovered later or later the the fines are extremely stiff so it, it's not something that you can hide either and when you try and hide it the people who broke in if they can get in again they see that you're trying to hide it now they can not tell everyone you got hacked if you pay them it's just another blackmail chip exactly and you shouldn't be hiding stuff like that anyway in a 2021 world where everybody has immediate access to live streaming anytime they want from anywhere they want somebody's going to catch you if you're doing stuff wrong Honestly, you know what's funny? And I vaguely remember this conversation that you and I had. It was probably in 1999. That's how long back we're going. Way back, machine. <laughs> Way back. And remember, so we used to have apps that we could stream like music and stuff on the internet. And as long as you had the address, you could go listen to our quote radio station, right? And we're like, someday you're just going to be able to take your phone or your computer is going to be tiny wherever you go. And you're going to be able to live stream video and audio everywhere you go all the time. Right. And we were like, man, you know how many, like how much corruption and like bad politicians and stuff like that are going to get caught. And sure enough, here we are 20 something years later, right? 20, 21 years later. And there is, you know, all the problems with, you know, police brutality being caught on camera, corruption being caught on camera, politicians being caught literally with their pants down you know all of this kind of stuff is happening and it's it's not going to happen any less yeah 
it's a wired world. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle. There's there's hot, tons of awesome things that have resulted from from the prevalence of cameras and smartphones and and ubiquitous Wi-Fi, ubiquitous high speed internet. But it is also a very dangerous world on there, right? And people, I don't think, sort of treat internet with the proper respect, right? Like you and I have double edged sword. Yeah, you and I have definitely trolled around in the dark side of the internet, and it is a very weird, weird place. But there's lots of benefits, but there's also, you have to be very, very careful, right? You don't just go wandering around through the bad neighborhoods at night. But the weird part about the internet is those neighborhoods come to you. You don't have to go anywhere to find them, right? And cybersecurity is not going to get any easier. And I really think that if you're, especially if you're a small business, you're a freelancer, a small company, or even up to a company that maybe has a handful of locations. So you've got, you know, maybe a head office that has a handful of staff in it, and you've got satellite locations or people who work from home. The number one thing is going to be a password manager, like you said. And number two is going to be training. Bring somebody in if you need to, you know, talk to Todd, get a consultant or somebody to come in and and explain and do a training for you on how to avoid phishing attacks, what not to click on, how to do confirmations, how to set up a process in your company that people need to follow, right? If they're going to wire money or any of that kind of stuff, right? How you handle and how you secure your client data. I mean, it's 2021, but people don't know a lot of this stuff, especially if maybe they're new in business or they're new to online, to working online. I mean, we had a client not even three months ago and they were asking us, like, how are they able to store people's name, phone number, address, credit card details so that when it comes time for their subscription, they can charge them again? And I'm like, you don't want to be storing people's credit card numbers. You do not. And you shouldn't. It's probably illegal. It depends where you are. But, you know, you have a, a provider who can store those like Authorized.net or MasterCard, Visa, Stripe, Square, you know, whatever, any of these payment processing places, they can store the data on your behalf. You don't need to know it. Your staff doesn't need to know it. You know, back in the day when we were doing tech support years and years ago, I don't know if you remember, but they had like the cybersecurity team and there's only like three people on it, right? And uh, when people would call in to say that they got hacked or people spamming them with email, that's right. People used to call about getting spammed for email to the cybersecurity team. Well, he would ask them like, okay, well, you know, what's your login and what's your password to your email or whatever? And they would just give it to them. And the guy, one of the guys that worked there, he used to write it down in a little book next to his computer so that he can go log in and clean up their email, get whatever information that they needed to send to the network operations people. And uh, he kept that in that book. And he got laid off one day and he just took his book home. <laughs> like, who knows what happened? <laughs> he's got everybody's login and password that he's worked with for the last however many years, right? So don't be giving people your passwords. Use a password management system. You don't need to know what your password is. The password manager can know it for you. One other one I would add to that list that just, I, I surprised I didn't bring it up earlier, is a good backup. You have to have a good backup of your data because if you do get hit by a, a cryptoware and it, it encrypts your data, if your backup is segregated from, uh, so you're not backing up the cri the, cri the crypto portion of the, the network, then that's sort of your last line of defense. So if you don't have good backups and, and you get cryptoed, there's not a lot that people will be able to help you with unless they're somehow magically able to unlock it. But if you do have good backups, you just say, give them, give the guys requesting the Bitcoin a middle finger and, and roll back to backup, right? Yeah, an off-site backup, right? Yes. So here's a story for you. <laughs> My friend James, 
IT guy. We were talking last week and they had a company who had, I don't know if it was a, a drive or a tape backup system or something, right? But they had something that they take off site, probably a drive. Well, the person at the company who was supposed to be taking the drives off site hadn't done it for two weeks and they're supposed to be taking them every day. And nobody was looking to see if the process had been done. And so anyways, they got a two week old backup. So, okay, it's not the end of the world. It's terrible because they lost two weeks of financial transaction data, but they bring that backup. They go to put the backup online. They can't get it to run because nobody's ever tested the backup system to see if they can actually take a backup and make it work again. And so, you know, it's a nightmare for them, right? Yeah. So I actually have a term for this. It's called Schrodinger's backup. That's right. Right. So there's a, a, ter- a term in physics around a thought experiment, around understanding sort of the uh, duality of particle and wave. And you, you can't understand if, 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 uh, if, if a particle is a, a wave or, or static unless you actually open the box to check. So the thought experiment is, is there's a cat inside the box. It's alive or dead. You don't know until you open it because then if you once you look at it, you've verified that it's one or the other. Same thing with a backup. You have a backup, but you don't know if it's alive or dead until you actually try to test it and recover it. And your story is bang on. Like this happens time and time again, where people just say, we have backups, but until you test them, you don't know if you have backups. Now, if you're a small business, you don't have a big infrastructure, right? What you can do is you can use something like maybe you have like OneDrive or something like that, that has crypto protection and you can check. And here's, here's a good example that you can use. If you're not paying for OneDrive or any of the, you know, offsite cloud-based drive systems, right? Like Google Drive or something, you probably don't have protection <laughs> against anything. If you're paying them, even if it's a small amount, it usually comes with a backup that they can get for you. You know, usually has another cost to it. But, but another thing that you can do is you can actually have another backup system where you can like, let's say it's Google Drive and OneDrive. You use OneDrive every day, blah, 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 blah. Everybody takes all their stuff. Then you take the vital part and you log into a Google Drive, save all the stuff and log out. And then that stuff is separated and safe. Poor man's backup. I actually have a system for that. Like I've got four different cloud services and and I'm just paranoid about this stuff. So I do occasionally just sort of every four to six months, I'll just copy all of the data and put it somewhere else. So you can use a thumb drive. Usually cloud drives are a little safer, but you also make a good point. Or you can buy a big external drive. Yeah, you make a really good point. Most people don't know that uh, like Office 365, the Microsoft suite and Google G suite, those things, those services actually do need to be backed up because they don't guarantee that the system is available. It means that, you know, if something gets randomly deleted, it might be available for 30 days. But if something gets cryptoed, it's cryptoed in the cloud and on your local machine. It doesn't matter. So you actually need a backup that's segregated from the service itself. And that's not necessarily common knowledge. So that's a good one for people to think about as well. Yeah, when we say crypto, we're not talking about crypto coin. We're talking about encryption, meaning you cannot, unless you get the the decryption key, you cannot read that data again. And you cannot just decrypt your data. It's impossible. You cannot get enough server time to decrypt your data. It would cost an unbelievable amount of money. And just the last kind of recap, you should have some kind of equipment protecting your equipment, right? So like VPN, we didn't even talk about virtual private network so that people are off site, then they have a secure connection into your business. You should have some kind of a firewall that is scanning everything that's coming into your business to check if it's nasty or not, and it can delete it before you get it. 
There is stuff where it can open a virtual computer, like a, a virtual console. It can test something, open it and see if it's bad and then delete it if it's bad. Then you've got backup appliances that can back your stuff up in stages, right? So it can be backed up. I don't know what the smallest increments are at this point, but, you know, hourly and and even daily is better than nothing, right? And kind of one last thing is is that security piece where you educate everybody, right, on your teams. Make sure only people in your company are using company equipment if it gets taken off site and uh, use a password manager. And uh, one last thing, because, I mean, my company does website hosting, we have a managed hosting service and we manage the backups and we manage the security. You need to make sure your website is up to date. You need to make sure your passwords for your website, if you have more than one user. A lot of times people, if they switch developers for their website, they just add more users and they never delete the old ones. So delete the old ones who don't need access. Make sure the passwords are updated regularly and changed and make sure that, I mean, that that $8 a month hosting that you have probably does not have a reasonable backup. And I can tell you a quick story about that one is a company that we worked with, they had like an additional directory next to their website that held all of the images that went on all of their products. So if you've got a custom product, there's an image in this directory. Well, the directory is massive. It was like, I don't know, like a terabyte of data on a web server. And what happened was somebody in their company accidentally deleted the directory. So they were going to upload something or whatever they were doing. They were trying to clean up some stuff. They deleted the whole directory. And then a couple of days later, nobody could do anything. They go back to the company and said, oh, the, somebody accidentally deleted this directory. Can we get a backup? And they said, no, the directory was too large, so we weren't backing it up. Oh, ouch. So they lost it all. And like hundreds of hours of work had to go into recreating that. So anyway, safety first, people. Todd, what types of professionals or organizations do you work with to help them get their security up to date? If you run an IT service organization or you're helping others with IT or internal IT, then I can probably help you out. Perfect. And what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, go to my website, itisabusiness.com is the easiest URL to follow. You can also look me up on LinkedIn. The slug is Todd, A is an alpha, K-A-N-E, Todd A. Kane on LinkedIn. You can find me there. And you want to plug the podcast? Yeah, I got a podcast. Uh, it's it's pretty nerdy. It's mostly for the IT crowd, the MSP crowd, but it's uh, called Evolved Radio. And uh, there's some other sort of various nerdy topics in there, like virtual reality and drones and graphite and all kinds of interesting stuff, but largely based for, for the IT people. So if you're in the IT industry, then you may want to check out the Evolved Radio podcast as well. Perfect. Todd Kane, Evolved Management. Get your security up to date, people. You don't want to be another statistic where your company goes bankrupt because somebody broke in for a little bit of Bitcoin, especially Bitcoin's worth a lot of money right now. So I guess I probably shouldn't say that, right? Because when this comes out, it might have taken a dive again by then. But who knows? If it does, I'm buying again. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Get your crypto, people. All right, guys. We'll talk again soon, Todd. Thanks, man. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. 
We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.